Shelley Schlender with MeAndMyDiabetes.com. This is part two of our conversation with Jeff Volick. In part one of our interview, Jeff gave an overview of why he thinks it's important to go beyond focusing on calories in, calories out as a way to deal with the widespread obesity epidemic. Here in part two, Jeff explains more about what he's discovering as he researches low-carb diets, including what he's discovering about a special marker called palmitoleic acid, which may be a clue for how many carbs a person's body can handle before it starts going haywire. Now here's Jeff, starting with his explanation about when he first tried a low-carb diet for himself. You said that you tried the Atkins diet. That is almost 20 years ago, in the early 90s. Did you feel a little bit like a heretic doing that? Uh, Well, of course. I was uh, actually working in a hospital at the time. I just obtained my RD. That means registered dietitian. Registered dietitian, yes. And so I was working with patients and counseling them on low-fat diets. And here I was experiencing a uh, dramatic positive response in my own body uh, to a very low-carbohydrate diet. I always knew I wanted to go back to grad school and, and study nutrition and exercise. I shortly after, you know, working in a hospital for a year, actually did that and became obsessed with learning more about low-carbohydrate diets. Was it because you were surprised by your own body's reaction, or was it because you were surprised that something that worked well for you was so widely condemned? I think both. I certainly wasn't learning about low-carbohydrate diets in the classes I was taking. It wasn't taught. And so I was doing this on my own in the library late at night, uh, you know, day after day, spending hours just trying to find as much research as I possibly could. And everything I was learning and reading about was supportive of low-carbohydrate diets. And this is the early 90s, so this is before the resurgence in research in low-carbohydrate diets. But there was actually quite a bit of work done back in the 60s and 70s. And, of course, Steve Finney had published some work in the 80s. uh, And it all was very favorable, and it was just shocking to me that this work was not followed up on and that we were promoting, uh, you know, carte blanche, low-fat diets with no caveats or recommendations uh, for alternative approaches. So, you know, this became uh, an obsession that really... uh, has continued on to this day uh, to learn more about these diets. And I was fortunate in my graduate work to have the opportunity to study this. It was actually my dissertation to examine low-carbohydrate diets. And so for the last 12 years, I've actively been uh, pursuing research and trying to answer some of the basic questions related to how humans and how people adapt to low-carbohydrate diets. Has it become your religion? Do you think to study this? Well, I think as a scientist, it would be reckless to say I view it as a religion, but the analogy is not a bad one in that people do view nutrition with sort of a religious vigor. The data should rule the day, and yet in my experience talking about nutrition with my many colleagues and and other researchers, they don't like to deal with this data. They don't like to deal with looking at data, period, or they don't like looking at data that contradicts what they have been recommending. 
I think a lot of scientists deal with data that is in conflict with what they've been promoting for years. They deal with that in a in a way that I would describe as cognitive dissonance. Uh, they don't really criticize the data. At the same time, they don't embrace it. They'll ignore it, reject my grants, reject my papers. But when you deal with these people face-to-face or try to debate them, they often back down. When you say someone backs down when you bring this up, is it because they're just tired of hearing from another low-carber talking this way or that they don't want to hear it or that they start to agree? It's quite common that they ignore us and there's probably it's fair to say that they do get tired of hearing this message but it's data it's hard science and it's difficult for them to deal with it's an uncomfortable truth I think many of them are coming to realize and they've built their careers on saying something different and so it it, you know I I do in, in some way understand their reluctance to embrace this because you know they're careers uh, and and to some extent the uh, livelihood of their labs may be uh, dependent on promoting an alternative message. First of all, we need to recognize that people vary widely in their ability to metabolize carbohydrate. So we have varying carbohydrate tolerances. A lot of people suggest that there's one best diet. The USDA certainly seems to say that. School lunch programs certainly seem to say that. Is your impression, as you look at this more, that people differ in what kinds of foods they do best with? Absolutely. Uh, we, we have essentially a one-size-fits-all dietary recommendation, and the fundamental problem with that is um, we have a heterogeneic population that doesn't respond uniformly to, to that diet. And this is not trivial because the number of people who really respond to a low-fat diet is probably the minority of people. Most people have some degree of carbohydrate intolerance and so would actually benefit from restricting carbohydrate, not fat. Uh, but that does vary from person to person, and so what we should be seeking is, is ways to find the right diet for the right person. And that probably starts with um, finding the right level of carbohydrate tolerance. Some people may need to restrict carbohydrates to less than 40 grams a day. Others may be able to tolerate 100 grams per day. Uh, so it, it depends on the person. Most dietitians agree we need to embrace personalized nutrition, but that viewpoint is oddly juxtaposed with this sentiment that we all need to follow the dietary guidelines. When it comes to kids, we have children that we know need glasses. We have children where we know that they need to sit at the front of the room, otherwise they lose their attention. We have a lot of variation that we know in how children learn and how people learn that we acknowledge and we support. The one variation I can think of in children and what kind of foods they get is if they have a serious food allergy, like to peanuts, for instance, then we'll watch out for that. Or if a child is overweight, then we're likely to tell that child to count calories more. Well, I think focusing on calories is not the most effective approach, but coming back to the, you know, your analogy with food intolerances, and we're very sensitive to people with lactose intolerance or gluten intolerance, uh, this is why we've introduced the term carbohydrate intolerance, that people have varying degrees of carbohydrate intolerance, and there's a very strong physiologic basis for, um, for identifying that as a concept. Um, and if you view it in that perspective, it's very you know, intuitive what you would do to uh, a person with carbohydrate intolerance. You would restrict carbohydrates, and that, in fact, is uh, what we have studied. And when 
people with carbohydrate intolerance restrict their carbohydrates below a level which, which they metabolize it appropriately, all their clinical markers get better. Now, we have, we have diets such as the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, where if a child has had epilepsy a lot, one way to break the cycle in many cases is to restrict carbohydrates to almost nothing and feed a whole bunch of fat. In a lot of those cases, after two years of that kind of very extreme diet, that child can have a pizza party. And in many cases, that child is well enough to eat pizza without having more epileptic seizures. Could this carbohydrate intolerance be the same? Could it be like that diet that you don't have to do your whole life? Could it be like having a broken ankle that needs to be set in a cast for a while? Is carbohydrate restriction just something you need for a little while? Oh, this is a great question, and, and we don't have a lot of, I think, solid research studies, but it, you know, observationally and, and my clinical experience, some people, uh, when they restrict carbohydrates and lose significant amounts of weight, do improve their carbohydrate tolerance such that they can, uh, in, in their maintenance phase, reintroduce some level of carbohydrate. However, that's not universally true. Uh, there are other people who remain insulin resistant and carbohydrate intolerant even after they've lost significant amounts of weight. So in order for them to maintain uh, their weight loss and maintain their metabolic health, they need to continue to restrict carbohydrates indefinitely. So again, it really comes down to the person and, and, and into, in many ways their underlying level of insulin resistance and whether or not that improves with weight loss. And some people, they're just genetically programmed to have a level of insulin resistance. And the only way they can manage that uh, is to restrict carbohydrates. And that's why we advocate you know, a, a sustainable, very low carbohydrate diet for people that are on the, you know, on the um, far end of the continuum of carbohydrate intolerance. But many people will be able to reintroduce carbohydrates uh, and, 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 and show improvements in insulin sensitivity. Uh, but that has to be monitored on an individual basis. And that's where um, the, uh, you know, the tailored approach and, the, and the, each person has to sort of chart their own path on this, uh, on this journey. Charting your own path these days can involve measuring your waist-to-hip ratio and looking at how much you weigh, but it would be pretty neat if we could look inside of our blood to see if there's something going on there that is changing one of those mysterious but important things that we call blood markers. Are you seeing any blood markers that you think would be good for people to monitor? Objective markers certainly help people in terms of uh, having a you know having a number that they can um, use to help guide them down this path. And you know at this point, it's a lot of it is subjective in that uh, you know you look at the scale and you you look at how you feel and if you have you know cravings for carbohydrate. Those are all indicators that perhaps you're consuming too many carbohydrates. But we are looking at biomarkers that would provide an early sign that you're mismanaging carbohydrates. That really means that when you're in, ingesting carbohydrate, a lot of it is being converted to fat in the body. And you don't necessarily feel that, and it doesn't always show up right away and in standard clinical markers. But we are looking at some, some biomarkers that would provide an early indication that you're converting dietary carbohydrate 
into fat and this is causing a lot of collateral damage and sabotaging you know a lot of your weight loss efforts and so this might down the road we're still validating this hopefully it'll be available uh, sometime in the near future in your book the art and science of low carbohydrate living you mentioned this marker that is called POA what does that stand for POA stands for palmitoleic acid and it's a particular fatty acid that we have measured in blood that responds very sensitively to carbohydrate intake. In some of your research that you've published, you've found that sometimes people who do well on a low-carbohydrate diet and do great on a high-carbohydrate diet, either one, their POA levels stay low no matter what you're feeding them. But other people where if their POA level is low on a low-carbohydrate diet, it starts climbing very quickly as you add carbohydrates back in. That's what we're studying, and it does vary from person to person. Can you describe the new study? Well, we're studying people now who are essentially uh, going through a dose response of different levels of carbohydrate. So we start them out at a very low level, adapt them to a ketogenic diet. And a ketogenic diet means that they're eating so few carbs that their body is burning fat in a way that produces something called ketones. It's a very specific state to be in. Right, they're consuming about 35 grams per day. This is a heroic effort on the part of my dietetic team. We're, We're actually providing all the food for subjects preparing all the food over about a five and a half month period. You know, Jeff Bullock, 35 grams of carbohydrate a day is not very many. That's like two salads and two bowls of leafy kale and maybe a slice of onions and maybe half a cup of broccoli. That's about it. Actually, you'd be surprised at the variety of foods you can incorporate into a diet with 35 grams. Our subjects uh, have expressed great satisfaction with these diets. In fact, after they've gone through all the diets, they come back to wanting to go go on the low-carbohydrate diet. What's a typical lunch then for these folks? Well, they may have a salad with chicken on it and a high-fat dressing, olives as garnishes. It's it's rich in um, particularly fat. It's not overly high in protein, which is a misconception with low-carbohydrate diets. Uh, it's, it has uh, non-starchy vegetables, such as lettuce, cucumbers, radishes, broccoli, uh, asparagus, cauliflower, etc. Uh, we're taking these people through various levels of carbohydrate, gradually introducing carbs over time to identify a breakpoint, if you will. At, at what point do they start to divert the incoming dietary carbohydrate into fat and our hypothesis is it will vary from person to person so some people may be able to tolerate higher levels of carbohydrate others may have a low tolerance but we're actually measuring then uh, palmitoleic acid as well as saturated fats in the blood and other more standard clinical markers we're also trying to understand what is the best tissue to measure this particular fatty acid in uh, it, it has a different um, concentration in different, in different cells and, and different lipid fractions of blood, and so we want to understand the, the best place to measure this for, for people. So we're, we're hopeful um, when this study's completed, we'll, we'll have enough evidence and uh, validation 
to launch this commercially so it will be available for people to uh, to test and essentially guide them to their own personal level of carbohydrate tolerance. Oh, so you have an idea of using this POA, this certain fatty acid as a marker to indicate whether or not when you eat carbohydrates, do they quickly turn into fat? Exactly, and, and that, that's really the the key. Uh, this, this marker increases uh, rapidly when your body's converting carbohydrate into fat, more so than any other marker we're familiar with and more so than any other fatty acid. Uh, so again, it provides an early sign before you've started to gain weight and for, before your, your um, other markers, your triglycerides, for example, uh, are elevated. This will, this will tend to show up quicker. So people can use this as a, you know, as a guide to say, look, I'm, I'm in a danger zone here. I'm still consuming too many carbohydrates and my body's not processing them in a healthy way. What about all those people who have already gained weight and they know that they've gained lots of weight and they want to lose it? Could this marker still be good for them? Well, they still need to decide what level of carbohydrate they're going to consume you know, to lose the weight. And if their body's converting, even when they're losing weight, still converting carbohydrate into fat, that, that, that's not likely to result in a lot of metabolic health, and that's unlikely to be sustainable as well. So, um, so I think it can be used initially to see where you're at. Some people may not need to restrict carbohydrates to 35 grams if their POA level is still in an appropriate range. So that would help, it would help to... Uh, guide them to um, the appropriate level of carbohydrate to lose weight. Um, but we think it's in particular valuable as you enter into weight maintenance because where a lot of people get tripped up on low-carbohydrate diets is they do quite well initially, but then they reintroduce carbs into the diet as they enter into weight maintenance, and they often exceed their carbohydrate tolerance, and that's when they gain the weight back, and, and you see a lot of recidivism and, and, and weight gain and enter into the, uh, you know, sort of this yo-yo type of uh, cyclic uh, weight loss, weight gain. I wonder if this approach might help no matter what kind of diet somebody chooses. If somebody chooses a Joe Furman kind of high carbohydrate but complex, lots of fruits and vegetables diet, and with that they restrict their calories um, so that they're losing weight because they're eating fewer calories. Dean Ornish, um, Weight Watchers, any diet where you restrict calories, the challenge is always the weight maintenance phase. And so at that point, you're thinking that would be a good time to be able to tell whether the weight gain that's happening is because of the carbohydrates or something else. Exactly, and, uh, and, it, and it could be used really with any diet. Uh, the assumption being, though, if you're eating a low-fat diet that's high in carbohydrates, unless you're very lucky and fortunate, you know, in terms of your metabolism to be able to process those carbohydrates, um, that your POA level might might be in that danger zone. Now, Jeff, how about somebody who likes to eat a lot of fat, and they don't eat that much carbs, but they tend to eat a lot of fat. You can eat too much fat, can't you? You can. Uh, certainly calories matter, even on a low-carbohydrate diet. Um, but my experience is uh, it's very rare for people to overeat fat when you're consuming carbohydrates at a level below your tolerance because you 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 are uh, barely burning fat for fuel uh, you you have a better fuel flow to all the cells in your body including your brain 
and and you just don't you don't have those cravings and you don't have the uh, hunger and appetite issues that you that you have uh, when you're over consuming carbohydrate. So you still think that even with a high fat diet, the carbs could be the Kindle that gets the appetite started again, and that's the thing to watch out for. And this marker might help figure that out. I think so. Uh, when you're keto adapted, uh, you have this remarkable ability to. Uh, to skip meals and not feel hungry because your body's relying on fat for fuel and you have most people even people who are very lean have 30 or 40,000 kilocalories worth of energy in their fat stores to get them through at least <laughs> I mean that could last them several days even of exercise so you can skip a meal and you don't have this crisis this fuel crisis for your brain because it can burn ketones or for your your muscle cells or any of the cells in your body because there's plenty of fuel around however if you're dependent on carbohydrate for fuel and you miss a meal that can turn into a crisis and that triggers a lot of appetite hormones and so forth which can lead to excessive consumption of calories now you're a weightlifter you could say that what matters the most is exercise and burning calories through exercise, but you haven't been saying that. You've been talking about food. Well, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for exercise, but the whole field of exercise science is much more complex than we make it out to be. Um, you know, and you know, if you're using exercise as a weight loss tool, that's different than you know using exercise to try to excel at a particular sport. So, you know, we have to be careful in, in how we prescribe exercise for people uh, and make it's very contextual. Uh, for example, in many people, exercise is a very poor weight loss tool. They just get hungrier. They get hungrier and their metabolic rate goes down. And so uh, simply telling people to exercise more to lose weight doesn't work very well. And that's been... that's been borne out in, in, in many studies now. Um, but if you're an athlete and trying to improve your performance, obviously training the right way, which is a whole other issue, but uh, you know, training is very important. But I've always been a, uh, a huge um, supporter of nutrition being critical to experience the optimal adaptations from training. So you may have the best training program in the world, but if you don't supply the right fuel to form the exercise and to recover from the exercise there's a whole you know new area of recovery nutrition now um, you won't experience the benefits of that training program so that that's why the field of sports nutrition is so important that integrating the two uh, to optimally affect performance and health uh, is really critical and there's so many misconceptions and mythologies in both nutrition and exercise that, uh, you know, it's a bit of a minefield to, to navigate through. Is that why you've written this new book on the art and science of, what's the rest of the title? The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, which is, is more or less an addendum to our previous book I wrote with Dr. Steve Finney, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living, uh, which was really the first book was geared more toward healthcare professionals and trying to empower them with the knowledge to teach uh, low-carbohydrate diets and, and their clinical application. But Steve and I are both athletes and uh, have actually studied low-carbohydrate diets uh, in the context of endurance and strength performance. And so we have a lot of athlete friends who said, hey, what about us? Um, 
can we benefit from a low-carbohydrate diet? And so uh, we wrote this book um, to specifically address the low-carbohydrate athlete who wants to, uh, you know, to go against the grain, so to speak, and, and, and is not interested in carbohydrate loading and all the s- sugary sports drinks and so forth. And, and, you know, can they actually perform exercise with very little carbohydrate? And, of course, the answer is... Um, with a couple weeks of adaptation to a low-carbohydrate diet, yes, they can not only perform exercise, it may actually um, result in even better performance. One question many people have who wonder about this as athletes is, does this low-carbohydrate diet for athletes work best for people in endurance sports, and should sprinters stay away from it? I think that that's a great question. Um, Clearly, from a metabolic standpoint, um, being able to burn fat more efficiently is is incredibly valuable to an endurance athlete, especially the ultra-endurance athletes where you're exercising for two hours or longer. You're going to run out of carbohydrate and glycogen. Uh, so being able to utilize fat efficiently uh, is incredibly valuable. Uh, now, for strength athletes and you know, high-intensity athletes, they... they um, you know, they're performing their exercise at an intensity that may rely on glycogen. So it's not as clear-cut how they would benefit, but what we've experienced is um, many of these athletes uh, lose body fat. And so they they maintain their muscle mass while losing body fat, and so this improves their power-to-mass ratio. So they're more powerful, and they have more energy to to do their uh, training, uh, but they don't lose their their muscle endurance and their strength and this is um, you know this is a valuable uh, adaptation for even strength athletes would you then perhaps suggest that if you're a, a sprinter train with a low carbohydrate diet and then on race day or two days before go ahead and eat that big plate of pasta it's it's possible I mean this is one approach we haven't formally studied this idea of reintroducing carbs strategically uh, around workouts or before events uh, but uh, anecdotally I, I, I know athletes in particular in Europe that uh, do follow this concept of train low meaning train with a low carbohydrate diet to induce a lot of the positive metabolic adaptations and then they carb load before an event uh, I think you know it, it does make sense it hasn't been really studied uh, intensely and I would be a little concerned with that approach if people were just exercising for metabolic health and they had carbohydrate intolerance because that might set them up to uh, you know to potentially uh, exacerbate some of their metabolic problems by reintroducing that just even a single carbohydrate meal can allow them to lose some of their metabolic adaptations that they've achieved with the low carbohydrate phases of their diet so switching back and forth is not something they can necessarily do efficiently compared to an athlete who's more insulin sensitive so there are some caveats with that approach but for myself I was a power lifter and I was uh, using low carbohydrate diets and it helped me maintain uh, my body weight I was competing in a in a weight class that uh, I tried to be as lean as I could without exceeding a certain weight, and I found low-carbohydrate diet was very effective for maintaining um, uh, maintaining my weight near my competition weight, whereas my colleagues would lose try to lose 20 pounds before a meet and subsequently lose a lot of strength, too. 
So I think it, it does have implications in, in weight uh, categories where, where you have powerlifting and uh, other weight class sports. Um, how tall are you and how much weight did you lift at your height of lifting? When I was competing, I was a little heavier than I am now. Uh, I was competing in the 181-pound weight class. You, were, you weighed 181 pounds, and how tall are you? I'm 5'10", and uh, my best uh, squat was 600 pounds at that weight, and I also deadlifted 600 pounds. My bench press was not as good, but it was about 330 was my best bench press. So those were respectable, but not, not good enough to really compete at the... Uh, national or international level but it allowed me to have fun and enjoyed it. This has been part two of an interview with Jeff Volick, a professor at the University of Connecticut who is the co-author of the best-selling book The New Atkins for a New You. He's also the co-author of two more recent books with Steve Finney, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living and The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. I'm Shelley Schlender. For more interviews like this, check out meandmydiabetes.com.